As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and it's that time again as we weigh up the 2023 F1 season and rank our top 10 drivers based on their performances throughout the year. But why did we end up deciding on this order, and how can we justify putting your favourite driver lower down than you would? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to explain all are Scott Mitchell-Malm, Josh Suttill, Ben Anderson, and Mark Hughes. Well, regular listeners will know the drill for this podcast. This ranking is based on each driver's performance during 2023. It's no attempt to measure their all-round qualities, but specifically looking at what they did over the 22 events of this year, factoring in speed, racecraft, consistency, etc. Basically, all of the countless ways you can measure a driver's performance. And of course, it takes into account their machinery and their own individual situations. All five of us picked our own individual rankings, and these were then awarded points to produce the final order. So that means this ranking is very much the races rather than that of any one individual. So we'll start off by going straight into it and talk about some of the drivers who were in contention but didn't make the top 10. Mark Hughes, who would you like to talk about of someone who was a relatively near miss? Yeah, I'd like to nominate Esteban Ocon. I thought um, his performance hadn't dropped significantly from last year but just the way he played out it played out I think there were more drivers around that probably performed better than last year in that lower part of the top 10 he did a pretty pretty solid job um he was outstanding in qualifying at Monaco which was the foundation for his podium there but I just thought as the season wore on whereas initially had the upper hand over Gasly who was his new teammate um, as the season wore on, Gasly tended to get the upper hand. And I think in that uh, period at the end, from, from Italy to um, Brazil, uh, I think he was slower than his teammate. Not by much, not ever by much, but usually slower than his teammate. Um, by I think, just looking at it here, seven, seven times uh, to three. So it did seem as if the momentum was with Gasly, and um, there were a few occasions where uh, he went out in Q1, communication breakdowns and, and, and things like that. So uh, not not a bad season. I don't think he quite made it, um, but it was, it, would, it was close between him and his teammate. 
Your Ocon was certainly close for me as well. Josh Settle, would you like to talk about someone who was a contender but not quite in? Yeah, I considered putting Nico Hülkenberg in, in the top 10. Almost made it, but on balance, just couldn't quite put him in there. You know, he had eight Q3 appearances this year. Not that many, fewer than Sergio Perez in, in the best car. So I thought Hülkenberg did really well in qualifying, especially we all know the the race weakness of the, the Haas. So it was no surprise to see him regularly slipping backwards. Um, but overall, I thought a really good year. And he, he came into that team and really, I think, comprehensively beat Kevin Magnussen. Uh, and did the better job of the two Haas drivers. So a really solid year, and I'm excited to see what he can do in his second year with Haas. Yeah, it's a real shame he really didn't have the car on race day to actually do himself justice, which made him very hard to put into the ten, not necessarily entirely his fault. Ben Anderson, who would you like to talk about of the contenders that didn't make the cut? Yeah, I want to talk about uh, Sergio Perez and Yuki Tsunoda. I think Perez based on the first four races of the season, would have unquestionably been in the top 10. But obviously the season isn't four races, it's 22. And I think thereafter he was particularly underwhelming uh, and certainly more underwhelming than he was last season. He made our top 10 last season. But I think when you delve into it deeply, even though he won two races and finished second in the championship, it's very hard to justify putting him in the top 10, which is maybe where people might expect that he'd be in the lower reaches. Uh, and in the end, I think when you look at Yuki Tsunoda, who was probably the most impressive non-Max Verstappen Red Bull driver in 2023, you can make a, a fair case for putting him above above Perez in an overall ranking. But again, probably not quite impressive enough across the full balance of the season with the, the ranging cast of teammates a couple of part-times, if you like, who pushed him quite hard. It's probably, he wasn't probably quite strong enough to, to make the top 10, even though he had some very impressive ind- individual races like Abu Dhabi, like Spa. Yeah, both very interesting contenders. I think had you done the list early on, Perez would have been doing very well in it. But as you say, it's a full season. And Scott, Ben took two there. So has he left you anybody to talk about? Uh, yes, he has, but only because I'll talk about it in a slightly different sense, which is, Across the season, we obviously had a few drivers that didn't complete the the whole campaign, whether that be uh, Nick DeVries, who was obviously axed about a third of the way through the year and I don't think was anywhere near anyone's top 20, let alone their top 10. Uh, you also had Liam Lawson, who who subbed in for a handful of races, Daniel Ricciardo um, as well. And it's Ricciardo and Lawson that I wanted to touch on briefly because I think if you were, if you were compiling a top 10 of people who furthered their careers in 2023 I think Lawson would probably be in the in the top half of that that top 10 such was the impact he made in his cameo as Ricardo's substitute at AlphaTauri but it just isn't quite enough of a sample set to, to get him into the top 10 proper um, he wasn't absolutely emphatically better than Yuki Tsunoda for example not that you would expect him to be but that's the kind of thing I think you'd need to show in a four or five race uh, run and uh, by his own admission a couple of those races didn't go quite according to plan and then Ricardo as well the if you were again if you were going to do a top 10 of drivers who hit an astonishing peak in 2023 relative to their car I think Ricardo's Mexico weekend would be a contender but that was one of I think was it seven weekends that Ricardo competed there were a couple in there that were Awkward because of circumstance. Obviously, you don't count his uh, FP one and a half at Zandvoort by any means. But there were also too many question marks at the end of it. You, I didn't don't don't think there was anything about Ricardo's part season that made you think, oh, this was yeah. In those in those seven races, he was definitely one of the best drivers in in, in Formula One again. So 
that's kind of the rationale for the people that missed out from in terms of impressing in their part season appearances. Very, very difficult to get into a top 10 driver of the season ranking if you didn't do the whole season. Very difficult to get in if you did do the the whole season. So those drivers never really stood much of a chance. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't mean they didn't do a good job, particularly Lawson in terms of transforming his career prospects. But yeah, they, they just don't quite make the conversation for the top 10, which is what we're going to get into now. So we'll talk through the 10. We'll let one of my guests open up the discussion about each one. Then we'll have a little bit of an argument because, like I say, nobody put the exact order together. It's a very much a, uh, a joint decision. So we'll start off with P10, Pierre Gasly. Now, Mark, you talked about Esteban Ocon a moment ago. Pierre Gasly, the other side of that coin, ended up 10th. So what did you make of his season? Yeah, I was quite impressed the way he came in um, as a new team. And he sort of, you know... Ocon's been there a long time. Ocon knows how it works. And it was a difficult car. It wasn't um, a car with a natural balance that would uh, be very well suited to Gasly. And there were times where, you know, we we saw his temperament flare up, as, you know, we've seen over the years. But he did get his head down and he did, as, as we touched on with Ocon, he did gradually grind ahead through the season as probably the slightly faster driver. Um, And he came in... I think the first few races where Ocon was always a bit quicker, you'd see a pattern through the weekend, a bit like we'd seen with Alonso and Ocon the year before, where Gasly would be quicker immediately, first practice, second practice, and then, but Ocon would just be working away, honing a balance, and when the time came, he would just bang in the lap. And I think um, it took Gasly a while to get that level of understanding that would enable him to work in a a similar way, but I think he did it, and um, he, you know, he got a podium uh, with, the, with the, that was mainly an inspired call to pit at the end of lap one at, at, at Zandvoort, but it was it was his call and it was the right one, and uh, yeah, I think he did a, a very good, solid job in a new set of circumstances. Yeah, very much a positive trajectory for him in the season. I think second half of the year, he was one of the stronger performers, one of the more consistent ones. And Scott, do you think Gasly's kind of established himself as the main man at Alpine? Or do you think his slight victory over Ocon wasn't enough to say that? Uh, I think it would be a bit premature to say he's the main man, but I think it's an excellent start. And you would think that when Esteban Ocon got that, was it a four-year contract he signed when he was in um, when he was in Alpine initially? You did think at that time it was like, okay, Ocon really needs to really needs to grab this opportunity and make himself like his best chance going forward is to just be. Alpine's undisputed number one. Fernando Alonso obviously made that very difficult to do when he was there. Alonso going, Gasly coming in was the chance for Ocon to show just how good he is and how important he is to the Renault Works team going forward. Unfortunately, even if Ocon does come back again next year and beat Gasly next year, there's always going to be that niggling feeling, isn't there? It's just like, well, you, you did get edged out in the first year and you were, and he's been there for a while, feet under the table, got everyone around him, talks about driving better than ever. So... I think this was a this was a good win for win for Gasly. Not um, not emphatic by any means, but I think if you are not the incumbent driver and you still come in and edge it, that means a lot more than if you do it the other way around. I think it's quite funny how um, your reference point for these things shifts sometimes because we were being a lot more positive about Ocon last year after he'd gone up against Alonso and looked quite good. You know, not better than, but decent across the balance of the season, and now. He's got a different teammate, someone who's maybe not, con- well, certainly not considered in the same tier as Alonso. 
and just kind of showed him up a bit, not massively, like you say, Scott, but enough to make you question it again. Suddenly the pressure's back on Ocon and he doesn't seem like he's he's all that. Gasly's actually someone I didn't have in consideration for my top 10 initially. I was debating the merits of Sonoda, Perez, Hulkenberg, as, uh, as Josh mentioned at the start. And then I read Ed's piece about how Gasly was gaining the momentum through the second half of the year that he wrote for the race. And I suddenly realised, oh yeah, Alpine, Gasly, he's doing a really good job. They, I think him and Ockham were kind of neutralising each other, which sometimes happens when drivers are very close in the same team. Um, but I think when you weigh up the fact that Gasly was new into the team uh, and Ockham, as you say, has been there for so long, that really strengthened his case to make the top 10. It is really difficult to stake your claim in F1's most anonymous team. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, if you put the the two drivers' campaigns together, you probably place them a lot higher. The problem was Gasly's first half was a bit weaker and then Ocon's second half was a bit weaker. So that's why I think I don't think any of us put Gasly any higher than 10th. I think we've all got him in 10th on our lineups because you can't quite putting them above that and the problem with Ocon as well I think is that he's able to get to those certain peaks but often he just has those patches where he just goes missing and this sort of he was putting a bit of blame I guess you would say on you know Alpine testing parts for next year at the end of the season and it seemed like he was reaching around a little bit for those kind of things but then you, you looked at what Gazi was saying and he was saying he was also testing parts and kind of doing similar things and he was still getting the job done so and unfortunately, a real lack of dissent in that discussion because I think we did all pretty much put him in the same place, which is not the case for the next driver, P9, George Russell. Ben, perhaps we'd have expected him to be a bit higher than this going into the season. So what did you make of his season? Yes, I had him a bit higher in my own top 10. I had him seventh rather than ninth because I think, although he described it as his worst season ever, I think in his whole career, not just his F1 career, I think the underlying performance was pretty good, wasn't it? You know, pure pace-wise, he seemed pretty much there with with Lewis again, maybe marginally more impressive, although obviously it tended to fluctuate because the car was so was so edgy. So he gets marked down, I guess, for the, the sort of big mistakes, you know, crashing out of a near win in Singapore, crashing out of strong points, finishing Canada, um, a few other major errors. Um, but... Maybe he also he's a little bit a victim of Mercedes not kicking on as hoped. Yeah, I I, I had him ahead of some other drivers because I felt like he was being slightly harsh on himself. Um, and there were some other races where, you know, like Australia, for example, he was performing very strongly and the engine just let go on him. So it's it's difficult to weigh up how many points he lost exactly to his own errors and some to misfortune. I think it was a, a mix of the two. Um so I think a decent season, but yeah, probably not as impressive as, as last season when Merck were maybe slightly more relatively competitive and obviously got his first win and on Sundays was very impressive. I think this season probably you could say Russell was marginally more impressive on the Saturdays compared to Lewis and relative to last season and on the Sundays, yeah, maybe slightly more inconsistent. I think the problem was on, on pure performance, if we're looking at pace across the season or the peaks definitely he would be higher up in the top 10 but I put him ninth just because we're looking at the I guess the complete drivers their complete seasons probably in, in the, the 10 fastest drivers of the year I'd place him higher but sort of the 10 most complete seasons I think those major errors just drag him down 
a bit too much for me. So he, for me, it was quite an easy choice to to put him nine, especially when you look at the other drivers in, in this region. I think those points lost were just were just too great. There's not a, another driver in this top ten where you can point to as many costly errors. Um, and I think some of them were a symptom of him kind of chasing a season, which I think he knew got away from him quite early on, or certainly by the midpoint. I think like the Singapore one, I, I'm suspect that that a little bit of that was thinking, okay, this is a really good chance for me to get a good result in a, a miserable season, and I think that played into it. So it sort of sort of fed into itself and and that kind of mindset as well. I think he uh, kind of the errors just bred more errors. Um, and overall, I think just a weaker season than what was, a, I think, a really impressive first year at Mercedes. One of the things that you factor in when you do a ranking like this is ultimately how much they got out of their machinery. And your, your benchmark for that is always going to be your teammate. And there's no question that over the balance of the whole season, Hamilton got a lot more out of the Mercedes than than Russell did. As Josh said, you know, the peaks aren't the problem. The 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 moments of qualifying. Um, performance were not the problem the the issue of the Mercedes being a car that makes it inherently difficult to get the most out of it is a mitigating factor certainly but the trickiness of the Mercedes isn't like we saw sometimes from the Ferrari in that what makes it difficult to get the most out of the Mercedes isn't something that should cause crashes or mistakes in the race. It's whether or not you get the tyres switched on in the right window and the car's actually to your liking in qualifying over one lap, which is why we saw Russell get knocked out at Q1 at one stage and a Q2 a few times and Lewis got knocked out in Q2 a few times. That's where the weakness of the Mercedes lies. So it's not enough of a mitigating factor. Russell was better this season than the likes of a of a Sergio Perez but he wasn't anywhere near the standard that he expects of himself or that Hamilton set most of the time on Sundays and that rate of costly errors was higher than anyone else that I would, than I would consider putting in the, the top 10 because when the likes of Leclerc or Orlando Norris made mistakes, it tended to be on Saturdays. Obviously, there were examples where they did make mistakes on Sundays as well, but they tended to atone for them more often than not. But when Russell made his mistakes in Grand Prix, it's very difficult to atone for putting your car in the wall. Yeah, I think, um, as you've all touched on, I think his his peaks and his, his raw speed were as, as impressive as ever. Um, and I think the edginess of the Mercedes that you talked about, Scott, in terms of generating tyre temperatures, what made it such a volatile form of, of, of in, in qualifying, you, you really couldn't, you couldn't rely on its speed in qualifying, um, because it all depended whether you get those temperatures in the window at the beginning of the of the lap. Um, so I think because that made it such a, a patchy performer, and it, you know a, a lot of it just fell in the lap of the gods. Whether you you got the right traffic placement on your out lap or whatever, which which of them was quicker in qualifying in one weekend than the other, and usually when one of them was. It was quite normal for one of them to be quite a lot quicker than the other one in qualifying, and I don't think that was because they, they, they were inherently quicker or slow that that weekend than the other one. I think it was just the circumstances of a car that if you didn't quite get that threshold for whatever reason, and it could be completely circumstantial, you were miles off, and that that car really um, brought that out more than any other car. And and I think Lewis with his long list of accomplishments and experience probably was able to be a bit more shruggy shoulders about that when it happened. Whereas George, who still feels he has to measure himself and then really stake his claim against Lewis, 
I think it was um, it, it was may, maybe a bit of, a big a bigger deal for him, and I think he's he was sometimes stretching a little bit to really try and pull off um, something that was just not there sometimes. And I think uh, that's probably where some of those race errors come from. I had him higher than uh, ninth. I had him seventh, but um, it wasn't his most impressive season. In fact, it was the least impressive season. Yeah, I um, I think he deserves a bit of credit to that point about staking his claim or pushing himself a bit more i felt like like lewis tailed off a bit towards the end particularly the last two races or three races and then like in brazil there was a good example of russell being quicker in the race i think the car was very difficult and he was hassling to to be let by lewis and normally and i think most of this season that's where hamilton was stronger was in in race pace but towards the end it was changing a little bit and then abu dhabi i know there was mitigating circumstances with the missed practice but I thought Russell kind of maintained his level right to the end whereas Lewis uncharacteristically was dropping off so yeah I think it was a I think it still was a decent season from Russell and obviously the the level he's racing at and the team he's racing for I think the pressure is slightly higher as well and the expectation is slightly greater so he has to manage that and maybe maybe that pushed him into one or two what would otherwise be uncharacteristic errors. Next up we've got the only rookie in our top 10 in eighth place Oscar Piastri Scott, what did you think of Piastri's season? How impressive a rookie campaign was this? It was very impressive. Um, I'm not going to get bogged down in the details of a social media style debate over whether it was the greatest rookie season in history and better than Lewis Hamilton's title-challenging campaign or anything like that. But what I would say is that it was it was very, very good from start to finish. It was a little bit harder to see how good it was early on when he sort of settled in and he just, he obviously had a very difficult McLaren to, to begin with and there were some circumstances in the races that held him back like the the, the the mechanical problem in the opening round in Bahrain and then obviously in Saudi when a great qualifying performance was undone at the first corner with some damage. But once, um, once the car started to get upgraded, the impressive thing was that Piastri went with it. An instant production of a great performance at Silverstone and uh, got the podium that he so richly deserved there later in the year. Got two podiums, in fact, I think, and then the win at, um, in the sprint race in, in Qatar. There were the usual issues of being a rookie that you might expect, especially one who had been out of a racing car for a year in terms of actually on a grid somewhere. So he wasn't particularly thrilled with his racecraft sometimes. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't stunningly good in the midfield early on, but it got better as the season uh, progressed. And uh, I think one of his overtakes, um, I think it was on Gasly in, in Las Vegas, was one of my overtakes of the season. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, and there, the other little issue he had was unexpe- unsurprisingly rather the uh, tyre management and, and race pace up against Lando Norris. That was where Norris tended to exert a bit of dominance really even in the second half of the season. But Piastri's one lap pace, the way that he got on with the job in Formula 1, his, his work ethic, his conduct off track, the fact that he barely made any mistakes on track and didn't get caught up in any stupid accidents really of his own making on track either I think this was a, a very very good rookie season and yeah he was he was in the top 10 for me when I even did the um, like a provisional one at the halfway stage of the season so I would never had any doubts in my mind that he would place quite well yeah for me his peaks were absolutely outstanding I mean turning up at Suzuka where you've never been before and turning up there on the 
second day and out qualifying Landon Norris and sticking it on the front row or putting it on pole for the sprint race and then winning it in Qatar. These were just absolutely outstanding and at a level that can compare to anyone in this list, literally anyone. Um, but they are peaks and um, over the season, uh, he's, he's about at the right, um, I'd say, lower end of the top 10 because obviously a lot, you, you just can't fill in those those empty data banks, especially in, in current F1 with so little preparation. You, it's, it, you can't get on a, a sim and, and, and get a proper feel for tyre dig. And that, that is where his, his weakness is laying. Uh, and just you know, the, the, these, these tyres. And I think you, you talk to people that he, when, he, when he raced in carts and in the junior categories, he's a driver that drives the thing totally on the nose, which is not how these cars can be set up because you just kill, you kill the tyres. Um, and I think if we were on uh, more uh, sort of traditional racing tyres, I think we would have seen a quite sensational first season rather than just a deeply impressive one. And uh, I think really the, the, the measure of a rookie is always going to be his peaks, and I'm very, very excited about what that level was. Uh, for me, he doesn't, um, I, I didn't have him ahead of Russell. I had him behind, but yeah, he's lower top 10 overall as an average. And he came in with such great pressure, didn't he, as well? One of the, the biggest stories of the off-season last year, it was such immense pressure for a rookie. And not only that, but as we said, being up against Norris as well, who seems to be in the form of his life, it would have been very easy for him to crumble. We saw further down the grid plenty of examples of, of rookies crumbling against very good teammates. So Piastri was just miles clear, really, when you, when you look at the job that Logan Sargent did and Nick DeFries did. Piastri was just miles clear even from an early stage of the season. So I thought it was very impressive. I did have him slightly higher. I put him up in P6. I thought his rookie season was was pretty sensational. As we mentioned, those bit of race pace weakness and, and tire management. But I yeah bumped him up slightly compared to where we've got him overall. I think his rookie year was pretty much just as good as Lando Norris's a few years ago many similarities I guess there because Norris was very close to Sainz in, in qualifying there and then Sainz ended up with about twice as many points and similar uh, similar thing has happened this year Norris obviously made quite a big step in in 2020 and I, I suspect Piastri will make a very similar step next year as well yeah not not much to disagree with I had him in in ninth in my rankings easily in the top 10 probably the most most impressive rookie season. Well, it's somewhere it's hard to say he was as impressive as Verstappen was, given what we know now. But it's somewhere in that kind of Norris Russell type grouping, I think, in terms of the splash he's made. Maybe, like Mark says, if things were slightly different, he'd have made even an even bigger impression. I think the only thing that lets him down really is that race pace weakness, and also the fact it didn't really seem to improve. Like it was apparent quite early on once the McLaren was a, a bigger factor the second half of the season but even by Brazil he was still well Brazil's a bit different because obviously he had the the incident but even the races just before Brazil he didn't he didn't really seem to to get on top of that or show noticeable improvement compared to Rory, compared to Norris and Abu Dhabi he was dropping off a bit more than Norris was so obviously being quite an analytical driver that's the the thing that stand, stands out to me is how intelligent he seems and how mature he seems considering how inexperienced he is Will he put that all together next season and show a big step up? That's that's going to take him take him further. He strikes me as a little bit like 
Nico Rosberg was versus Lewis Hamilton, a guy that can take all the data and then process it very quickly and then make the step, which probably is part of the reason Lando Norris finds him such an annoying teammate. But anyway, a really solid baseline, very impressive start to his F1 career, but we need to see a little bit of progression, I think, next year. And a good example of how the way you judge rookies affects where you put them in the ranking because you can make a case for him to be higher or lower, really depending on what sort of uh, allowances you make for that. But I think we'll all agree, yeah, a very impressive rookie season. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on now to seventh place, which is Carlos Sainz. Josh, Carlos Sainz, in fact, one of only two drivers in this top 10 ranking who actually won a Grand Prix this year. So why P7 for him? Yeah, what a roller coaster year. Uh, the only non only non Red Bull Grand Prix winner of the season. And what a sensation, sensational mini run he had after the summer break. If we were basing it on those short sample of races, then he'd be probably number one or number two. But unfortunately, over the course of the whole season, he was once again uh, not quite as impressive as, as Charles Leclerc over, over the whole year. In both qualifying uh, and the races, there was quite a few messy weekends and even that run was quite short-lived. Obviously, there was the upgrade in Japan, which just described as a very small upgrade, but that seemed to tip the balance quite a bit in, in Leclerc's favour. And there were some occasions where just sort of track limits got in the way or there were just little incidents and uh, and that was a shame and I think that's what drags down his ranking because across Zandvoort, Monza, Singapore, you know, he, he was sensational. I think I'd even say his, his Italian Grand Prix drive was perhaps even better than his win in Singapore, just the way he was able to defend so, you know, virently against Verstappen and Perez and then his teammate was, was pretty sensational. Um, and just, yeah, a real box off box office kind of reminder of his talents. But like I say, unfortunately, just like previous years, he's just not able to sustain that level across the whole year. So that's why for me, he was in P7. And as you say, Ed, we've got uh, Science in P7 overall as well. Ben, you were the one who had Science the highest, not a vast amount higher, one place higher in your top 10. So this isn't huge matter for uh, dispute or dissent, <laughs> but, uh, but why one place higher for him? Yeah, I I think he was quite impressive in the sense that he tended to be a bit stronger when the Ferrari was at its worst. I think I think of the Spanish Grand Prix where, you know, he he executed a few of these races where he the best he could do was a kind of a quiet fifth or sixth, but Leclerc was having massive issues with the car so much so that he thought it was broken. And then obviously the peak that Josh covered very well was impressive because it wasn't just a flash, there was a sustained run where actually he looked like 
the strongest Ferrari driver. I don't think he had many weekends where he was really off it. Um, Baku definitely was one of those. Hungary, obviously, he went out in Q2. That was another. Abu Dhabi at the end was very disappointing. He had a bit of bad luck thrown in as well, not even being able to start in Qatar, not his fault. The Vegas thing, obviously, is well documented. So I think underlying performance, I think, went up a step. I think his consistency across here was pretty good, although obviously the first half of the season was a bit weak overall. Um, so I marked him up, I think, just slightly higher because of when the car was at its worst or not suiting the clerk, science was uncomfortably close to him, if not on top of him, which you wouldn't really expect. And you had him marked slightly lower. You had him below uh, Russell in your original ranking. Again, only small differences, but uh, what did you think of science? Obviously, for me, there are a few too many errors here and there. That that was one of the main things with, with Carlos that uh, concerned me a bit. Australia, that final standing restart, for example. Yeah, there were a few scrappy moments, um, as there were with Russell as well. I think they had quite similar seasons, actually. Um, and yeah, the the was super impressive in that that that's, that spell that we talked about. This sort of Zanvot to Singapore, but uh, I just think you know when everything is balanced as Leclerc needs it to be. Uh, the, the, the science doesn't have an answer in qualifying. He, he can. You know, if the car's best served with a measure of understeer, which it was, you know, from that um, that period that we're talking about, uh, then then yeah, Carlos is is brilliant with it. But I think when you then sort of can improve the balance without hurting the stability of the car, it doesn't take much of a step, whereas Charles does. But you know, we compare him against arguably the fastest driver over one lap in Formula One. And he, he averaged 0.119 off, just under 0.19 off, which is a, you know, it, it's not insignificant, but it, you know, com, com, looking at what you're comparing him to, it's still a very, very high level. And I think his best stuff is terrific. Uh, he just, yeah, he's being stretched. Yeah, absolutely would agree with that. A very good season, but yeah, just lacking that tiny little bit to be right up there in the upper echelons but yeah very much a fine driver let's move on to sixth place now which is Alex Alban now Mark obviously he was very much in the the weakest car of those in our top 10 so how good was his campaign I had a fantastic campaign he was um if you look at that bunch of cars fighting at the bottom of the you got the um the Haas the Alfa Tauri the Alfa Romero and the Williams uh they were so closely matched uh in in race pace that the only thing really that separated them was, was the, the driver. And, and Alban was by far the outstanding driver in that group of four teams. And he did that thing that he's so good at doing, which is over-qualifying the car, you know, using its um, new tyre grip to sort of um, disguise some of, the, some of the weaknesses of it, knowing full well that uh, he was giving himself a... a an afternoon, a race afternoon of, of defending and, and, and then pulling it off uh, more often than not. And he's, he's uh, Montreal drive was obviously the um, the most uh, impressive of those, but he, he put in pl- plenty of them. And when the car was even, the, Williams is very good at finding little pockets of opportunity for its performance. Like if it was tyre degree, uh, tyre temperature related, for example, they would find they would find a way of running that car very and, and he was absolutely crucial to nailing those high pressure laps. Um, I'm thinking of Zanvoort in particular. 
Um, he was very, very impressive. And um, he really gave the team a lot of leadership as well. He was making a lot of the calls, um, which the, the team really, really did, um, you know, find inspiring because it gave, the, it gave them confidence. And they began to operate in a, a way which looked much less scrappy than in previous years. And it, I think Alban was a big part in giving everyone that confidence. There was a confidence and elegance about the way he went way he went about qualifying in general I think that sort of it was almost actually what Sergio Perez needed to be needed to have in in the Red Bull ironically which was that I remember Albon I remember talking to Albon about this just before the summer break and he said that even though you're in the Williams and your chances to get into Q2 and Q3 feel, feel high pressure they're actually low pressure laps they're not laps that he felt nervous for because the confidence he had in the car was such that he knew that all he needed, it was so simple, but all he, he, he just needed to do the lap. He just needed to go out there and just do a lap that he was capable of doing. He wasn't overreaching at any point. The The ability to to sort of tap into that almost simplicity of qualifying is something that Albon definitely didn't have back in his Red Bull days, but has regained in spades at Williams. And it resulted in the kind of performances that Mark is talking about. Those qualifying performances then set the foundation for either vintage Alex Albon drives on Sunday where he uses the straight line speed of the Williams to hold off faster cars, or a couple of times just outright on merit, paced his way to a strong points finish. And this was... This was a remarkable season for, for for Albon in terms of execution, outright speed, full on just... If last year was rebuilding his reputation after Red Bull, this year was him making a statement about just how good he can actually be, raising that ceiling, not just sort of bringing up the basement, so to speak. So it really was, it really was an, an excellent year. And had all the hallmarks of a driver who has fully banished the low points of the Red Bull years and has embraced where he is now and probably where he can probably go in the future. And he absolutely demolished rookie teammate Logan Sargent. I mean, it's the first qualifying whitewash since Albon's own where he was on the receiving end of it back at in 2020 with Max Verstappen. And yeah, it, it, it was one of those things where even in qualifying, if Sargent was looking slightly the quicker driver or was having a particularly good weekend Albon was still able to outqualify him he was still able to to find that gap or any kind of advantage for that Sargent would find on those rare occasions that he did and he was yeah very much leading the team and, and Sargent was very much following him throughout I guess for me that's the only caveat is that there wasn't a really solid second driver there a really solid benchmark you can say that, of course, about Verstappen with Perez. You can say that about Alonso with Stroll. But for me, the difference of Albon, I guess, is that there isn't that prior front-running prowess that we know Alonso and Verstappen is. We don't need a teammate to know how good Alonso or Verstappen is. We maybe sometimes need that of Albon if we're talking about them in the, the same kind of conversation. So I put him eighth instead of sixth. So that was probably the primary reason why I put him a little bit lower but it's only fine margins but that was kind of my logic there that we didn't have that teammate barometer even though what we could tell was was very very impressive it was similar for me actually I there was a bit of a top team tax associated with me having Albon eighth and behind Sainz and Russell rather than ahead but actually I kind of disagree with myself now because if you look at Albon's week 
weekends they were very few you know he did have some but they were they were less off weekends for him than they were for Russell and Sainz probably and peaks at least as many if not more so even allowing for the fact that he's in a slightly lower pressure environment and has a little bit less to lose in some of his gung-ho qualifying laps and what have you I think you can make an absolutely fair case for having him above those two even though I didn't well done for disagreeing with yourself. That's what we, uh, we like to hear. Yay. <laughs> Let's move into the top five now. Fifth place, Lewis Hamilton. One place down on his 2022 position. So, Ben, Lewis Hamilton's campaign. Yes. Uh, what to make of Lewis? I think broadly similar to last season. I think that's you know, the fact that he's only one place down tells you quite a lot. I think he got some extra credit last year because of how unexpectedly Mercedes misstepped and how much of the brunt of the work he bore in terms of trying to figure out where they'd gone wrong and doing various experiments with setup and what have you. This year, I think, was a was a bit more straightforward from that point of view, but obviously the car was no better. They really went nowhere. And I think we saw some flashes of Lewis at his best, I think, particularly of that latter stint in Mexico, where he tried to go after Verstappen. Obviously, he did well in in Austin, and that's the closest anyone finished to Verstappen in a race that Verstappen won, but obviously the car wasn't legal, so it's it's hard to kind of credit that too much. So there are moments where you kind of felt like it's clicking again for Lewis and he's he's motivated, but then there, there are times also, particularly at the very end of the season, where you feel like it's all just getting to him and he's not quite phoning it in, but certainly asking himself whether it's all worth it so the, the the great driver that we know is still there, obviously, and you'd have him in in the top tier of discussion with all the other guys that we're we're going to discuss. But I, I feel like he's a, become a little bit more limited by the car than maybe you would have ex, you'd expect based on history. You know, he he seemed more perplexed by this Mercedes than last year's, even though it wasn't too different, and we're almost waiting for the real Lewis to return and I'm not sure if we're going to see it it's going to be very much dependent on whether you know rejigged Mercedes come out firing on all cylinders next season I think I think there's um I think I I agree with a lot of what Ben said there about the sort of hits and misses of his season I do think not necessarily us when we discuss this here but maybe people who reflect on Hamilton's season as a whole do need to be a bit wary of recency bias in terms of judging his performance this year because that end of the season was bad and it wasn't just bad in terms of circumstance it was also that that was when he seemed to have a sustained run of qualifying difficulties over those last three weekends and it did feel a little bit like Lewis had just sort of had the not the wind knocked out of him at the end of the season but just for whatever reason, just ended up on the wrong side of that coin toss on the Mercedes too often. And when it happened that many races in a row, then you do have to, as he did, start to question you know, how much of it is just car and how much is he just not quite doing what he needs to do to get the most out of it. But prior to that run, you know, Austin as an example, I still think you give him full credit for that Austin performance because he smashed Russell that weekend. And um, I don't really think that Hamilton's car was necessarily performance-definingly illegal compared to Russell's. I think there's a decent chance that if Russell's car had been checked, that there could have been an issue there as well. So I, I don't want to. I wouldn't take that away from him. And, and all through the year, there were you know these smatterings of really, really class performances. The the thing that if there was anything that concerns me about Hamilton's season the most, it is just 
the ver the the really volatile swings and I think I'm borrowing a word that Mark used earlier when we were discussing Russell because it's a Mercedes trait as much as anything else in qualifying were bad for for, for Lewis you know this was a driver that was on on pole at some point in in the season and then in that same season has you know consecutive Q2 eliminations and and whatnot so as much as that is down to the volatility of the Mercedes, there was a little bit of, um, of of Lewis just admitting himself in the second half of the year that he has not been strong enough in, in qualifying. So I would expect with a stronger car that Lewis gets back to, to his consistent best, but I still think he has to bear some responsibility for where there were weaknesses in his season. The, the, the championship table can lie sometimes. Where it doesn't lie for Hamilton is the fact that he finished third and did come out as did come out best of those drivers that had a had cars that were really strong at random points of the season so Alonso Lando Norris the Ferrari drivers um circumstance maybe maybe not necessarily flattered him but hurt others a bit more but he still did an excellent job on the I think on the balance of the of the whole season yeah he was only sort of sparkling Lewis sort of two or three times um but he did pull together a very effective campaign given the limitations of the car and you know there was a time where he was actually pushing Perez for second in the championship and you know the if it hadn't been for the disqualification which of course was was obviously it was it was a black and white case it was it was under under the prescribed limit so therefore he was out but the fact that he could be in that position tells you that he put together a good campaign, effective campaign, given the quite serious limitations of the car. Um, if those limitations had been slightly different and had been still a, a balanced car, I think we would have seen the the, the 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 more you know mercurial Lewis that we are familiar with from his career. But we did we did see that flash of it with a pole position. In Budapest, where the, the car for once was in that nice, happy place, it's Budapest has got a lot, a lot of medium uh, speed corners that, that go on a long time. So that entry instability that the car has didn't hurt it so much. And its lack of high speed um, rear grip didn't hurt it so much. And the instant you put the car in that happy place, there, bang, he's, he's on pole. So I think that does tell us that if Mercedes can somehow you know starting from scratch again as as they essentially will be doing can give him something competitive i think he will still be there yeah his i, th- I thought his level was was really good throughout most of the year i think i would put it more on those inconsistencies with the car than any kind of inconsistency in his his own performance he didn't have the major mistakes that russell had obviously guitar was a particularly costly one but even at Monza with his laps with Piastri, which was his fault, he didn't really lose much from that. Other than that, there were a few incidences in qualifying where he probably put a few feet wrong, but you know there weren't the same race errors of Russell. And as I kind of said earlier about Russell being under so much pressure, you know, part of that was because of Hamilton's level throughout the whole year. Russell was pushing so hard to try and meet that bar because that bar was, was so high. And I still think his performance was, while not at his best ever season, I think it was still probably at a similar level, really, to some of his weakest title winning years. I think his peak performance was still really good. And his race pace, as always, is what 
kind of separates him. You know, his qualifying pace against Bottas was never devastating. I mean, well, often would be devastating, but when he looked over the season as a whole, in terms of qualifying records, it was rarely ever anywhere near a whitewash, but it's in the races where he's so effective. I think this year he was 16-6 against Russell, obviously various factors you can put in there with disqualifications and retirements, but he was clearly... Uh, you know, more often than not, the more effective driver in the race. And I say more effective because there were times like Suzuka where Russell maybe had a bit of a pace advantage early on and maybe the battling him wasn't helpful for the team, but it was still Hamilton who came out on top in those kind of scenarios. And I think he pulled off a really good move on the inside of Alonso at 130R. And, you know, that kind of magic, which we've alluded to, I think was still plenty present this year. So I had him up in third, but really, I think for me, these last few places were especially hard to, to place, but I did have him a little bit higher than the, the fifth that we've, we've come to the conclusion of. Yeah, I think all of us found P2, 3, P5 to be quite a tight one to work out, so Lewis Hamilton ended up fifth. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Let's move into the top four now. Fourth place for Lando Norris. Scott, obviously plenty of podiums for Norris this season. Lots of self-criticism in qualifying. How do you weigh it all up? Uh, too many errors on Saturdays to, to challenge for for second in this list, um, which was where he was in that bracket, sort of second to fifth was the one of the orders that I had the most difficulty uh, settling upon and obviously he crashed out at the start of the Las Vegas Grand Prix so I w- I think off the top of my head I think this was the most mistakes Lando's made in a in F1 season um, in meaningful sessions whether that's qualifying or the race that said he, he kept everything pointing the right way and pointing the right way very quickly more often than not and some of the performances on Sundays were absolutely extraordinary whether that was a relatively quote-unquote straightforward drive from the front of the grid to a podium to a best-of-the-rest result behind Max Verstappen, 
or whether it was charging drives back up the order like when he underperformed in qualifying in Qatar or got himself knocked out in Q1 in Mexico. Some of the some of the Sunday performances and Piastri offered a nice perspective, yes, as a rookie, but it showed that that car had amazing qualifying potential, but it wasn't easy to drag that car to the results that Norris managed to achieve for much of the season. So I think this was almost as almost as good a season as you can expect from from him. He has now got, I think, is he equal with equal for the record for most podiums without a win. Um, it's a record that doesn't do him justice, whether he owns it on his own or shares it with someone else. There needed to be a little bit more refinement in places. I think he does need to learn to drive at 98 or 99% sometimes in qualifying just to do to do enough rather than, than, than trip up unnecessarily. But I think part of that was down to the um, peculiarities of the McLaren and potentially even an extra trait of lariness that they... Uh, kind of developed into the car with the the upgrades as the as the season went on. So very very good, but not absolutely perfect and outstanding. Hence, I think he was um, I think he was fi- I think he was in this position in in uh, in my list as as well. So not quite good enough for a podium spot. Mark, how do you slice and dice this question of Norris's overall performance level versus the the not delivering in qualifying and the qualifying errors? Yeah, I think it's very much tied into the traits of the McLaren. Um, it, it is, it is quick, but it is tricky. And I think, you know, if you if you, um, it'd be quite quite easy to drive it just slightly under the limit and qualify P six, P seven. Um, but he's he'll, he'll pull a P two out of the bag. Um, and so, for every time he he does one of those errors, he, he I, I tend not to be so harsh on somebody that can pull something extraordinary out um, because they're, they're, they're trying to do something extraordinary when they, when they make those errors. They're, they're, they're punching above the car's weight. Um, I had him P3. Um, it, I thought it was quite close between him and, on my personal list, Fernando Alonso. I thought Alonso actually made more race errors, especially in the latter part of the season. That um, And I thought Lando's uh, strength on Sundays was, was actually better. And I think um, I would argue that his drive in Mexico was the drive of the season. And uh, so on, on a Sunday. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, he, he's just cemented his place really as, as one of the elite performers in F1. Um, it's just the, the, the stats don't align with that perception perhaps yet, but that's, that's just circumstantial, just the car that he's, that he's had to drive. Yeah, I had Norris higher in my personal ranking. I had him second, which is where he was in our collective ranking last season. I didn't, I didn't place so much onus on the errors, although he obviously beat himself up quite heavily for the qualifying mistakes. I felt like he he recovered from them quite easily in the races. You know, in Abu Dhabi, he was round the outside of Russell almost immediately. Obviously, Mexico, as Mark mentioned, one of the one of the best drives of the season even though he was out in Q1. So the peaks were phenomenal. I felt like he got better with the car. And when the car was not particularly strong at the start of the season, he was still turning up and performing very well. Whereas I think with Alonso and Leclerc, you could make arguments that they went briefly missing a couple of times when their cars weren't all there. So I feel like Norris for the peaks and also the level of consistency didn't really deserve to be dropped down, but it was close. You know, I think 
that grouping of drivers. I had Hamilton slightly apart as being a bit below par compared to them, but I think any one of those three you could put in that range from fourth to second. Well, let's move on now to the next driver in this very tight group. In third place, we have Charles Leclerc. Josh, no wins for Charles Leclerc, but up in P3. What did you think of him? Yeah, I mean, I think that's quite a deceptive stat and the fact that there was only six points between Leclerc and Sainz at the end of the day was not at all reflective uh, of the gap between them across the course of the season. Uh, Most people probably just perhaps just think of that really strong end of the season run and that was really impressive, but there were plenty of really good drives earlier in the season as well. He was a bit unlucky with reliability early on, obviously in Bahrain, and there was that racing incident in Melbourne, which maybe takes a little bit of blame for, I don't know, but certainly wasn't 100% his fault. Um, There was a bit of, he got bottled up behind Magnussen in Miami, and there was a bit of a way too long fight going on between those two then, and there was a couple of, you know, anonymous weekends. But also there were some really, really good peaks as, as ever with Charles, you know, he over qualifying on a Saturday he definitely had the edge over over science it was perhaps closer sometimes in the races but yeah that he had a, he ended the season really strongly I placed him fifth and overall we've got him third so I might defer to someone who's placed him a little bit higher but for me he just didn't quite have as good a year as last year he didn't have the same errors as last year but for me I feel like his pace relative to signs and his overall performance across the year was stronger last year. I feel like he took a, a bit of a step back this year. There were a few more off weekends on pace um, compared to a few off weekends with a few errors last year. So yeah, it, overall for me, not quite a strong year. But as we've already said, he could be could be higher. But yeah, he was P5 for me. Yeah, Leclerc managed to be classified second, third, fourth and fifth uh, across, uh, <laughs> across us. So let's go to uh, someone who had him higher, Mark, you had Leclerc in second place, as in fact I did. So uh, so why did you go so heavily on Leclerc? I thought he pulled off some extraordinary performances in qualifying that really flattered the car um, and was occasionally able to hang on to those places in the race. And I thought the, it was a much trickier car, less competitive car than last year's. And I think he was probably trying to do the impossible um, even more often than he already was, um, but he, he he would, you know, he, he would he would pull it off quite often as well. It's similar to what we're saying about Lando, um, and I just think his his level is over one lap um, was the foundation of his season. I think he's got an extraordinary ability to um, put put the car on the edge. That's um, a little bit nervous uh, over one lap, and I think that was a very valuable asset in that little group that the. Ferrari was in in that uh, sort of Ferrari, Mercedes, McLaren grouping. I think he often made the difference. And for me, that that, that was um, the, the justification for putting them P2. Yeah, five pole positions for Charles Leclerc over the season for Grand Prix. Scott, you recently did a piece about how that Suzuka upgrade really helped Leclerc in terms of having that great run at the end of the season. Although Leclerc did do some very good stuff earlier in the year as well, I would argue. But do you think that's when we really saw the best of Leclerc? Uh, On a sustained basis, on a consistent basis, I think it was. But that's because it allowed the car to be set up back towards what he likes more, which is that that more easily manipulated rear end with rotation that is aggressive, but it's also, uh, what's the word, like predictable, consistent. Um, He can preempt it almost. I think the problem in the first part of the year, and this is why he had such fantastic peaks, but also 
horror shows like uh, Miami and even the crashings and vault in qualifying because you had just had weekends where the car just wouldn't work with that that way of um, trying to set it up and Leclerc took responsibility for that he said that he shouldn't have been pushing for that kind of setup when the car couldn't really handle it then obviously when they tried to um, mitigate that before they had the solution of uh, the floor in, in Suzuka by dialing in some understeer into the car. It exposed what Leclerc readily admits himself, which is that he hates driving a car with understeer and he really struggles to to actually get the most out of, of that kind of car. So there were some moments in the first part of the year where Leclerc was exactly as extraordinary as you'd, you'd expect. There was a bit of a mid-season dip, but it was only temporary. And then in the final phase of the season, he was absolutely spectacular again. Yeah, I think he's been ranked slightly too high. I'm more on the Josh end of the spectrum in terms of where he places. I think he had a few too many off weekends early in the season, which Scott just covered. I also think when the Ferrari was at its best, although I accept it was a very difficult car, and I think both he and Science deserve credit for what they did with it. I'm thinking of the low drag races like Monza, uh, Vegas, and obviously Singapore where the car was strong. Like Science was better than Leclerc in two of those races and in Vegas he qualified very close to him and obviously then had to take a penalty so I think he let science get a little bit too close to him and I think to use Scott's phrase from earlier there's a little bit of recency bias in terms of the clerk season like it did finish very strongly and it's tempting to write off some of the the dips earlier because of how how impressive he was at the very end I think on balance this wasn't one of his most impressive F1 seasons. Well, there were a lot of good weekends early in the season. I think it's possible to forget. Bahrain was strong. Saudi, considering how the penalty was good. Azerbaijan, he was outstanding. Monaco, he was very good. So I, I think there were a few weekends. Obviously, Australia, Miami wasn't good. Spain was bafflingly bad. But I, I don't think the, the shape of the season was quite as extreme in terms of mega at the end and not so good at the, at the start. I think slightly patchier at the start, certainly, but not not overwhelmingly so. It perhaps also depends how you kind of weight your top ten on, you know, do you factor in when is the car when the car's at its best, who is performing the best, you know, and how much does that matter? Or is it just about every single weekend? You know, like last year when Leclerc had the edge clearly in the first half of the year, when the car was at its best, obviously that's why he got the, the race wins early on. And obviously, like Ben said, when the car was potentially at its peak across Monza and Singapore, obviously it was Science who had the edge and, and he got the big results, had you know, People sort of say that uh, some people say that, you know, the clerk was robbed in Singapore or kind of, you know, used as a bit of a, a sacrificial lamb. But, you know, the fact is that he wasn't in that leading position. Science was a quicker driver or science was the driver ahead and he was able to get priority. And that gift uh, that meant that he deserved, you know, Ferrari's only win of the year. And, and that was the, the chance for it. But yeah, he was still very impressive. You look at the other win chance was maybe Las Vegas and Leclerc was sensational there and he was not at fault for, for that and got a great last lap overtaken as well. So yeah, it, it's a tricky one. Just like Ben, I'm sort of talking myself out of my own argument a little bit, but uh, I would still place him um, just below. Hang on, I'm not, these, I'm not talking myself out. I, I think he should have been lower. <laughs> I don't think he should have been in the top three. I agree. I agree with that. But uh, <laughs> stay, stay I, strong. Stay strong, Josh. <laughs> well, he's ended up third. That's the uh, that's the cumulative wisdom of uh, of the five of us. So we'll move on to P two now, which is Fernando Alonso. Scott, obviously, a star of the first part of the season. A bit harder later on. How do you weigh all that up? I think the best way to distinguish between Alonso, Leclerc, Hamilton, and Norris 
is to look at how often over the course of the year they had the second best car. That would be that that to me speaks volumes to just the job that Alonso did this season. Like he really over the full season's worth of races has no business being fourth in the drivers' championship and having the results that he had, including obviously on Aston Martin's weekend of weekends in the second half of the year in Brazil managing to actually outthink and outfight Sergio Perez to grab an unlikely podium there because Alonso had the second best car in F1 for probably a quarter of the season and he had one of the three or four best cars in F1 for maybe a third of the season and then the rest of the season he had a distinctly average sort of marginal top 10 car that's even occasionally fell behind an Alpine on on an off weekend whereas for example Norris had spent two-thirds of the season pretty much with the second or third fastest car in F1 the Mercedes and the Ferrari alternated through the year being the second best car in in Formula 1 there were weekends right at the end of the season and right at the start where the Merck or the Ferrari were really good on Saturdays and Sundays and Alonso didn't have that apart from two weekends Zandvoort and and Brazil as from Canada onwards, Alonso never had that, and yet he was he, okay. And so the podiums dried up, but the performances, generally speaking, didn't. There were more mistakes than you might expect for him. I think Singapore, in particular, was a was a race to to forget. But I do th- I do believe that while it's difficult to judge him absolutely definitively because of his teammate and the fact that there wasn't that stern challenge in the way that there was at times for Leclerc at Ferrari with Sainz or Hamilton and Russell at Mercedes I I have I I just my ultimate analysis of Alonso is that more often than not and more often than anyone else in that gaggle of of drivers he got the most out of his machinery in 2023. Mark you had Alonso a little lower how would you counter that case for him being uh, being second best? Yeah, I mean, we're talking very, very fine margins at this level, two, three, four. Um, but yeah, I, I weighed it a little bit, partly at the um, sort of quite surprising frequency of uh, incidents in the races in the latter part of the year. Um, but I think also it was typical Alonso in that he would, there was not one aspect of driving where you, you you would say he was the best but he, he was he was nearly the best at all of them he's like typical Alonso performance he's, he's, he's a very rounded peak but he's so wide and, and he's so repeatable and that's I think where we, I don't think anybody else would have been able to do what he did to Perez in Brazil um, but at the same time I didn't see um, the sort of special, really special qualifying laps that Leclerc pulled out probably five or six times during the year, or similarly with with Lando. I don't. I think I do believe if he was in that McLaren, while he would have obviously been super competitive and and would have you know garnered a lot of points. I don't think he would have squeezed the ultimate from it in the way that Lando did in qualifying. And I think that's that's really the only way that I could sort of distinguish because it was an outstanding season and it was fantastic to see. And I think um, there were sort of doubting voices ever since he announced he was coming back. And um, I was never one of them. I always felt he was going to be outstanding. And and this he finally got into the car this year, the first part of this year, that allowed him to demonstrate that. And it was one of the highlights of the season. And then he just kept pulling out the occasional 
um, you know, sparkling performance when the, when when the car was less good, and uh, it was it was uh, it was it was inspirational as ever. I think I've weighted mine more towards the the race performances, and that's why for me he was the number two. This one was actually for me fairly easy, really, when I was looking at this group of, of four drivers. For me, Alonso does come out on top. Perhaps it's a bit of that magic in the race. I mean, look at Zandvoort where he was trying out, you know, the inside of the the bank curve on the formation lap or ordinance reconnaissance laps, and was testing out the grip there, and then executed a, a couple of really good overtakes in the race there. Like we said, the, his management against Perez in Brazil, it was just so clever, and you 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 can't really help but get kind of swept up in that magic when when thinking about it because it was as ever just great showmanship really throughout the whole year even up to Abu Dhabi and that perhaps more questionable brake test um it was always just a really smart driving and even when the Aston's performance you know dipped he was always or so so regularly best of the rest and just taking home the points finishes in a way that he didn't always do that at McLaren and and, and previously Obviously, there were there were mistakes, and that did cost him some points finishes. But more often than not, he actually adapted to to life back in the midfield in a, a really good way for the most part. So uh, yeah, for, for me, he was just incredibly impressive. And let's hope for the sake of F one that you know Aston can produce a front running car next year because it would be great to see this level uh, in a front running car for for hopefully the whole season next time. Should we move on to our somewhat inevitable number one now which is of course Max Verstappen. Mark we've had to reach for plenty of superlatives to describe his performances over the course of the year on this podcast. I'm going to ask you to reach for a few more when it comes to characterising his year. So just how good was Verstappen? Um, It was an extraordinary performance even given the fact that he had clearly the best car. It wasn't always the best car and there were points in um, several weekends where it was very, very difficult to extract um, a really, well, either a pole or a front row lap time from it just because of its particular traits um, to do with the front tire uh, temperatures. And yet he always found a way, apart from in Singapore, it was, um, he just made it look a lot more seamless than I think uh, it really was. I think... Um, I don't think anybody else would have won uh, as many races in that car as he did. And I think uh, he's just reached a level of innate confidence in in himself and in the team and in the the calls that the teams make that allows him to just operate in in, in this special place. Um, How long he'll be able to stay in that special place, you know, is anyone's guess. But I think um, part of the... A big part of the dominance, the the the, the overwhelming dominance, um, should should be uh, attributed to him, and that uh, he was he was extraordinary. Really uh, difficult to um, to put it in any other way because uh, it looks on the surface like he just you know qualified somewhere near the front and then just disappeared off into the race. But there were there were so many weekends where that was uh, it took a special driver to be able to do that. I think many people listening might say, oh, well, it's so predictable that you'd put the runaway world champion number one. But it's difficult to appreciate just how difficult it is 
to execute the level of sustained achievement that Verstappen has. And but for two or three unfortunate circumstances that were not of his making, he could have clean swept the season. You know, if Red Bull had turned up to Singapore with a proper setup, he would have been a contender there undoubtedly. And the two races Perez won, mainly he won because Verstappen had a technical problem in qualifying in Saudi and in Baku was the lead was handed to Perez because of the, the safety car intervention and Red Bull misjudging that situation. So really when we've weighed up all the other drivers, we've talked about periods where there were slight dips or they let races get away from them and some did so more than others. But with Verstappen, there was there were really no dips. His performance level was always outstanding. And the other thing that really impressed me is he obviously wrapped up the championship with many races to go. We got used to in Lewis Hamilton's dominant days, there were some periods where he'd win the championship after a fight with Rosberg or what have you, and then he'd kind of check out a little bit towards the end of the season, you know, phone it in, enjoy himself. But Verstappen just came back relentlessly trying to win the next race and the next race and the next race all the way to the end of the season. There was absolutely no let-up. So, I mean, it's an easy decision, I think, to put him stand out, clear in a way, number one. Yeah, you can't underestimate what goes into winning 19 of, of 22 Grand Prix weekends and such a busy year. It's it's pretty sensational. I think this driver-car combo will go down as possibly the greatest ever in, in retrospect. I don't think it's only going to improve with history, whatever happens next. I mean, just the, the way and his involvement as well within it, it really feels like this is a Verstappen-steered project, a Verstappen-steered car in the way that you know, Perez has just not been able to do this over the season and in in any way at all, really, apart from at the very start. It's not as if, you know, he could go into qualifying and have a, a one second advantage or easily put the car on pole or easily walk away with it. You know, this is a, a dominant car because it is the best in the races, but that wasn't always the case at every single weekend. And there wasn't some comfort margin where he could phone it in and still get the, the win. He was pushing every single weekend. He was hitting obstacles on a lot of weekends. He was in trouble or their team was in trouble on, on Fridays generally, at, um, genuinely at you know a few weekends, but he and the team just dug their way out of it and racked up victory after victory and have got record after record to the point where listing them becomes dull because he's just got so many and it's inevitable when you look at any kind of list like most win, uh, most wins in a season or win percentage you don't even have to check you just know that he's going to be at the top now and it's fully deserved from both him and the, the the core team at Red Bull I think I'm most impressed by just how he worked through that early phase of the season when I agree with what Ben said I think it was that you know he didn't really have any dips he had uh, had a by his own high standards a relatively slow start in that there were a couple of weekends where he was um okay found himself behind Perez on track through circumstance the you know the problem he had in qualifying at Saudi that left him out of position on the grid there um the fact that he was um that that, that Perez was fortunate to get track position ahead of him in the race in Baku but but in both of those weekends what happened once Perez was in front is that Verstappen what just simply was not quick enough to to get back past him um that was eye-opening for him and he used that final part of the second half of the Baku race to try and work out whether it was um, diff settings and brake settings to just sort of tune the car a little bit more to his liking and then open the door for him to change his inputs as well. Drive the car in a slightly different way, make it more effective. Now, through the season, I do believe that as the car was developed, it did become a little bit more 
easy for Verstappen at times to access that brilliance that he has. But the fact he was able to work through some difficulties early on, still have within those difficulties a couple of weekends where he was head and shoulders clear of Perez, you think Bahrain and Australia, but to have had a couple of problems as well and then work to make sure that never happened again over the entirety of the season, that is the bit that stands out for Verstappen. To me, that shows, that to me is a better show of his relentlessness than, for example, the the run of wins after becoming champion. Because the the, the main thing I would say, you know, the, the Hamilton comparison I think is valid to a point, but... I don't remember, like, I don't think Hamilton was unchallenged in the way that Verstappen, you could argue, is unchallenged at times this season, where that Red Bull was so far and above anything else on a Sunday, it just depended on whether or not Perez was going to be anonymous or not, or if anyone even tried to make a bit life a bit difficult in the first few laps. So I'm not saying it was therefore easy for Verstappen to keep winning after winning the title, but if you're looking for a display of his relentlessness, his desire to improve, his his determination not to leave anything on the table. For me, it's in those first few races of the year where he was like, I'm not having this. I'm just not going to let him get... I'm not letting him have this again. And then just making sure that Perez was ground into the dirt from there onwards. And the fact he did it the way he did in Miami, where Perez should have won that race, that to me was the point of no return immediately, just a few races into the season. And ultimately, the comparison with Perez over the season is what tells you that it's not just in these great cars you turn up and you win every weekend. Because if that was the case, then Perez would be easily finishing second all the time. And that's just not what happened. I think he only put it uh, first or second on the grid uh, six times over the year and not after race 10. So say what you want about the characteristics of the car. I think that just shows what Verstappen contributed to that, which is why he's number one in our ranking. So just to revisit the top 10, for those who've forgotten, it was Max Verstappen first, second, Fernando Alonso, third, Charles Leclerc, fourth, Lando Norris, fifth, Lewis Hamilton, sixth, Alex Albon, seventh, Carlos Sainz, eighth, Oscar Piastri, ninth, George Russell, and tenth, Pierre Gasly. Well, thanks very much to Scott, Mark, Ben and Josh for your insight and your contribution to our top 10 ranking. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen, plenty to read there over the winter. Have a listen to our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, our IndyCar Formula E and MotoGP pods as well. And if videos are your thing, check out our YouTube channel. Well, it may be the off-season, but we're not going to stop here. So stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of Formula One. The Athletic.